All right, welcome into Pater Sports, part of the Six Pack Coverage Network. Uh, this is Nick Trushel here, solo from the Pater Sports team. Uh, but as always, got a couple of guests uh, with us today when we're missing some folks. So welcome him back, Toe Batista. Um, and then we will be having Ryan Shumpert um, join us later, give us some insider info on some balls talk. Uh, but Toe, first of all, how you doing, man? I'm good. Been good. Uh, thank you for having me, per usual. Um, very excited to, to talk some NBA shop with you guys or with you. Um, you know, it's uh, there's been some good games, there's been some blowouts, but I, I think there's been some fun storylines too underneath it all. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of crazy stuff going on. Before uh, uh, we get into it, there was a little request here from John Dundon. Uh, we we had a we have to clear his name before we get uh, started here. So. John uh, had talked about a P, uh, PGA championship stat um, and figured out the 54 hole stat he mentioned. So what the commentator said was in the PGA championship history, anyone that had a three stroke lead or more heading into round four had gone on to win the championship hundred percent of the time. And that was the lead Mito Pereira had on Sunday that prompted the comment by Nance or whoever said it. So just to clear that up, that is the official stat that was given during the PGA Championship. Uh, so definitely an ultimate collapse uh, from Mito there. But hey, that's golf. It's a it's a mental game, and uh, that's going to happen sometimes. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I felt bad for Mito though too, because like you could just tell in the back nine once JT got hot, he was uh, yeah, and he, he was, was just kind of kept looking over in. his shoulder. Yeah, he was. So. Um, that was pretty crazy, but uh, I do want to talk a little NBA finals um, and NBA conference finals too. We can start with that before uh, we get into some college talk, but uh, so Warriors Mavs kind of a, a slower series. Uh, Warriors were in control. Most of the time, Luca didn't have much help uh, Celtics heat went seven games and ended up being a four point win by the Celtics in game seven to pull that off in Miami. Uh, so pretty crazy finish there from that series. So what are your kind of perspectives here on the Celtics defense um, and how they were able to just really destroy Miami's offense this series? Obviously, they dealt with some injuries, but still uh, the, the way they were able to stifle everyone. Jimmy Butler obviously had a great night, but uh, didn't have much help outside of that. Yeah, I, I think like the Celtics, like kind of going into the playoffs, like it was it was very much kind of like a, a thermometer, like playoff. Um, run for them in my eyes because like they've had some tough breaks in the past like you know when they first got started like when LeBron was still on um, like still on the Cavs like they they got to the Eastern Conference Finals and then they like, lost to LeBron then the next year I think they lost to the Bucks then they got swept by the Heat so it was like you know kind of going into this playoff run it was like it was kind of you know a very good indicator of are Brown and Tatum really ready for the spotlight and I think that defense has really shown that they are um, and I think Tatum specifically like yeah, smart one, defensive player of the year. I think Rob Williams is – I mean, he was kind of hurt this whole Heat series and yeah. Tyler's the whole playoffs. But um, Williams has stepped up a lot on defense yeah. too. I mean, he's been – he's been insane. Like, it, and so, like, that's a, the really – my biggest takeaway is, like, even looking at the Heat, who kind of their calling card was defense. But it's like if you looked at that their defense, even in that regard, like, they're very, very thin. Um, and you kind of saw it in game right. seven. Like, they're, you know, they're playing – both teams were kind of, you know, hurt, playing hurt. Um but I think that's what why I think like the Celtics are going to be a really tough uh, matchup for the, the Warriors too. Is like their length across you know one through five is insane. But they're also it's not like they give up any steps. Like they're super quick. They're all yeah, um, you know, they're kind of like amoeba, like on defense. Like they they all really rotate well. 
Um, and I think that's obviously, you know, why they, they kind of had the, the midseason turnaround. But um, I, I think Tatum's really grown in that regard, too, because you always knew he had the offensive repertoire. But see him, like, getting after it defensively um, has what, in my eyes, kind of elevated their season, their, their ceiling. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Heat played their asses off, though. I Like, they – I was very, very impressed with their effort game seven because, like, like I was saying, like, you know, Hero – played like six minutes, but uh, very sparingly. that you could tell he wasn't a hundred percent Lowry the same way. Like I, I mean, Kyle Lowry ended up on the floor, like every single possession it seemed, it was, it was pretty annoying. Yeah, but, he was um, flopping like crazy. I think a lot of the function of that is just like, you know, he's a guy who, yeah, he's kind of, he's like 36. Now he's lost a step, but he just could not get past anybody. Um, so uh, I mean, it was a great game though. I, I, that was very, very entertaining. Yeah, it was definitely entertaining and a lot more entertaining than really any of the Warriors Mavs games. I felt like uh, Luca really didn't seem to have much help. Uh, Reggie Bullock played kind of trash, uh, had a, one or two decent games. Um, Dwight Powell, not that good. Max Kleber, I feel like kind of got exposed on defense. Luca kind of got exposed on defense too a little bit. They really attacked him. Um where do you think that Dallas team kind of goes from here on out? They're, they're in a tough spot here. Yeah, I think like, I mean, first of all, like with that series, like you could just tell that they really had no business being on the floor with the Warriors and they kind of, the Warriors kind of exposed that. Uh, yeah. But then it's also like when you just named, you know, the supporting characters, it was a supporting cast for that Mavs team. Like none of those guys, you're really going to make a deep playoff run. With. No. Like, um, with that being said, like, they did really get a lot of open looks in a lot of those games. Like they just could not make anything. I, yeah. I don't have like the numbers pulled up in front of me, but like they could not, their three point shooting percentage had to be just absolutely abysmal. Um, so I think like, I think it's obviously a net positive. Like Lucas, the man, I think, you know, just a function of them having a lot of tough series in a row. Lucas playing 40 plus minutes a night. Like they just kind of relied on him to do everything. And that just takes a toll, especially when playing a Warriors team, that's just going to spread you out so well defensively where, they, they can kind of find your weaknesses. So I think as far as like the Mavs, you know, how they pick up the pieces a little bit is like, like Hardaway was hurt. Um, like Brunson's up for extension. So it's like, they, they have a lot of like decent role players, but um, I think their biggest kind of, and I remember talking to you guys this about when they made the Porzingis trade is I think what they realized is like Luca can't, doesn't really necessarily need like, a one a one B like kind of co-star, but right. so they, uh, what they ended up doing, the, you know, the trade deadline is like, let's just surround him with a bunch of shooters. So they got clear They got, excuse me, they got Dinwiddie, they got um, Bertans um, who really didn't do anything in the postseason. but like, they kind of went the more like LeBron approach of like, let's just have like a very versatile defensive team and then filled with shooters. Um, obviously like a lot of those players, I, I really just don't think are that good. A lot of them have just been kind of flyers throughout their entire NBA right. career. Um, so I, I think like the blueprint of what they want to do makes sense. Um, but they also, they just do need an, a massive overhaul. Cause just a lot of those guys that like you just see in the Warriors um, series, like just did not belong on that same uh, playing field. And the, the fact that, you know, the Warriors are going to, you know, they're going to be good for, it looks like for a couple of years, you've got the Grizz who, you know, without jaw, like, or with jaw are going to be a force to come. The Nuggets are going to get married. Like that West is going to continue to get loaded. Yeah. So it's almost like if you don't really upgrade at any of those positions, you're getting worse. Um, Cause also, you know, the Clippers dealt with injuries all year. Like They'll I said, be back, Jamal, yeah. exactly. Jamal Murray, you know, was out like this was kind of a fluky run and 
that can kind of be a little dangerous when it's like, oh, you're satisfied with that. You know, you made it, you're one of the last four teams remaining, but at the same time, it's like, if they don't really make some moves in the off season, they're going to fall behind the West. No, I agree. And uh, like you said, the West is so young right now. Um, besides the Warriors, I guess, who are a little bit aged, everybody else has a pretty good young core, I feel like. Um, and the uh, Warriors have even dealt with injuries. Like we forget about Wiseman has pretty much been out this whole time. Who knows if he'll actually end up uh, being any good, but for sure. We'll be interested to see how that pans out. How do you think this finals is going to finish out? I think uh, the Warriors really have the experience here. I mean, think they'll pull it off against the Celtics, but it's going to be a tough fought series. I know that, especially with uh, how the Celtics play defense. And like you're talking about with that length. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, You know, it's funny too, looking at just like the road to get here. It's like the Celtics had this, you know, they swept the nets, but you know, they had to go through Katie and Kyrie. Like those were, you know, game one was close. Like they had some tough, um, tough, tough games. Went to seven with the Bucks. went to seven with the Heat. And then on the flip side, you look at the Warriors, you know, they played a Nuggets team that didn't have a lot of their best players. They beat them in five. They had the Grizzlies in six and, you know, half those games were without jaw. And then they just pretty like handily just took care of business with the Mavs. So I got to imagine either like, you know, they've got to be feeling pretty fresh. With that being said, though, it's like the Bucks road, like they've had to beat some absolute killers where like, you you know, the Warriors have had kind of a cakewalk where, you know, the Warriors haven't had a team that's really kind of gotten after them defensively. Um, and the Celtics are going to do exactly that. Um, and so I think also like, because the, you know, the Warriors are so guard heavy, but the Celtics are so long, like usually a good counterbalance to a lot of quickness is a lot of length. Um, so I actually think the Celtics match up really well. Um, and I was actually listening to like some podcasts today and they, um, they were saying that since Kerr got to the Warriors in 2014, the Celtics are the only team in the NBA, um, with a winning record against the Warriors. Um, and I think it wow. kind of speaks to that is like they have, you know, Marcus Smart, defensive player of the year, whether that's warranted, you know, could go either way, but he's undoubtedly one of the best, you know, defensive guards in the league. You put him on Curry. Um, you have Clay, who he kind of went off in game five, but also like by and large has been pretty unimpressive in my eyes throughout the playoffs. Um, he's kind of lost his quickness, um, you know, with the dribble. And defensively, he's not the same guy he was, you know, three, four years ago when he could just lock up Kyrie and even match up with LeBron. Um, so I think on the flip side, the Celtics pose a lot of mismatches, you know, from their regard too, because, you know, Wiggins obviously played really well against Luca. Um, but Tatum is kind of a different beast because he's so much longer than Luca is. Um, and then you have Jalen Brown, who's for a forward, pretty massive, like, you know, the, the Celtics lineup is, you know, six ten with Horford, assuming you get a healthy Rob Williams, he's a seven footer. Like they're going to present a lot of problems for this Warriors team. Um, and I think, because they've, you know, obviously the Warriors have been battle tested over a long enough time horizon, but I think this year specifically, like they haven't really had to face a team that can really bully them um, defensively. And I think the Celtics can do that. Um, so I, I actually think I'm, I might go, um, I'm not sure how, how bold of a take this is, but I actually think the Celtics are going to win in, in six. Um, I, I just really don't well, I think can- like the Warriors I, I obviously like it's very tough to bet on the Warriors, but I think they're going to kind of get exposed offensively where Wiggins has been playing out of his mind. But when you play a team that's so well balanced as the Celtics, right? And the Warriors are too. But what the Celtics can do so well is kind of force you to play or like force different guys to beat you because 
you know, Al Horford can switch because, right. you know, Brown, Tatum, and Smart can all switch. And, like, that's what the Mavs tried to do. But, you know, it's different when it's Dwight Powell, Reggie Bullock, and Luka versus, you know, every guy just named on the Celtics is a very – like, I think also every single guy on the Celtics starting lineup had, like, an all-first-team defense vote. Um, and so I, I think that, like, this really reminds me of, in a weird way, this is obviously not the same, but it kind of reminds me of like the, when the Pistons in 04 played the Lakers where the yeah, Lakers yeah. had, they had one, two in a row, they had Kobe and Shaq and you kind of went into that series. Like, yeah, this is a very experienced team. They have, um, you know, great players, obviously, you know, Kobe and Shaq and then Steph Clay Draymond. Um, and that Detroit team really did not get a lot of love going into that finals. Um, and I think not that the Celtics haven't, like they've obviously earned their stripes through this playoff run. Um, but I the think Warriors people are, kind are of, still favored for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think people are undervaluing how, how tough of it, um, you know, that Celtics defense is going to give them issues. So I actually, I, I think I'm going to, I, I, I'm not like super confident, but I actually, I really think the Celtics are, are going to win this series. No, I like that take uh, a lot. It's um I mean, it's like I said, it's going to be a tough series. I think maybe the the experience from the Celtics, uh, or excuse me, the Warriors will kind of overtake that defense, and the the Celtics young core could get exposed a little bit. But hey, maybe this is the year they kind of step it up and finally make that jump and prove to everybody that. Uh, I mean, the Celtics are here to stay. Jason Tatum is a superstar. Jalen Brown is an All Star, borderline superstar, and their supporting cast is great, like you said. For sure. Just like one more po- point on that too, and it's like even like kind of looking at game seven last night, like by and large, the Celtics really controlled pretty much 46 minutes of that game. Like the second quarter, Jimmy kind of went crazy, but then the fourth quarter, you know, they're up 13 with three and a half minutes. And you kind of thought like, yeah, it's over. Um, And a big part of like the Celtics problem, not only this year, but of the past is like, they kind of in certain clutch scenarios or, you know, crunch time more or less, like they'll kind of, play like a hot potato of like, who's going to take the shot. Um, so when you're up 13, you end up having Marcus Smart just launching threes, launching layups, you know, and the Heat, who really had no business being in that game, you know, cut it to two with a chance, you know, with Jimmy potentially to hit a three to take the lead. Um, obviously the Celtics won, but talk about a team where you can never afford to fall asleep for even two minutes is the Warriors. Um, so something I'm like going to try to look out for is, you know, looking for, and that's kind of been very emblematic of these Warriors teams the past couple of years is, you know, they'll have like a three minute burst where, you know, you're up five next thing, you know, you're down five and you're like, what the hell just happened? Um, And I think like given how the Celtics, like that seems to be a a very common issue for them um, in many of these games. I, I think that's what scares me is the Warriors can really end up stealing games by taking advantage of that. And that's, uh, that's been a a weak point for the Celtics all year. So it's um, something I'm going to be looking out for. Yeah, it's definitely something to keep on the mind. I uh, just shot Shump a text, so he should be joining on here soon. Going to talk a little college hoops up here next. Um, Toe, I guess while we're waiting here for Shump to to get on, why don't you give us a little preview of maybe some Michigan basketball uh, as a uh, fan take here coming up for next year? Uh, For sure. Um, I mean, it's been interesting, and you've seen this too, just from a natural landscape of college basketball like this offseason is like, with us NIL stuff, like you have a lot of good college players who end up staying. Um, yeah. Like you've seen this at, with UNC with like bait, like their entire starting five mm-hmm. minus Mannix coming back. Um, and you, you're seeing it with Michigan and, and Hunter Dickinson, who, I mean, the thing is, is I've never really thought, and I continue to think until proven otherwise that he's not really going to be a good NBA basketball player, but 
it gets to a point when in your college career, when you're an All-American, you're all Big Ten, you know, you're putting up great stats where it's almost like, you know, how like how much benefit are you getting from staying in college? And I think without the NIL, you're going to I think Hunter Dickinson would probably go. I think they would probably go just to like cash in while your, you know, your trips are high. Um, but now like you, you see like Hunter staying, you see Baycott staying, you, you see plenty of other examples of this going on too. Um, and so Michigan, like obviously kind of had a surprise run into the tournament um, last year, you know, beating Colorado state and then beating Tennessee. Um, and so they end up a lot of their guys from, from next year or from last year are staying um, Dickinson staying. They've got two freshmen who are, who are five stars who kind of did like, we're pretty underwhelming, but also, you know, they're five stars, like very athletic, have a lot of potential. Those they're staying as well. They just got a, uh, a transfer from Princeton um, who's an all Ivy league guy. So I, I think Michigan's actually going to be probably, if not the favorite, um, a favorite to win the big 10 next year. Um, they also have Jawan's other son. His name's Jet Howard went to IMG. So oh, yeah. a four star. Yeah. Um, who looks, you know, all the parts of a potential all big 10 wing. So I'm super optimistic for Michigan. Um, it's just, you know, obviously a lot can happen until then, especially with the transfer reporters still kind of live. But they, they've got another good recruiting class next year, and they're bringing back a lot of experience. Um, and Hunter Dickinson's probably going to be preseason Big Ten Player of the Year this year. So I, I'm, I'm super optimistic. But um, you know, we'll, we'll see how the, the rest of the transfer reporter shakes out. Yeah, and uh, thank you for the quick intro there. But uh, Ryan Shumpert has joined us in now, uh, talking a little college hoops. Shump, uh, good to have you back on, man. Appreciate it. Glad to, glad to be back on. Yeah, we uh, it's me and Toe today. Uh, Seth is running a little bit late, and uh, Donnie is out on a family vacation. So we had to uh, call in a couple of ringers to take care of business uh, while those guys are busy. But, yeah, well, I, you know, I hop on, and the, I think the last time I was on here was right before the NCAA tournament. The first thing I got here is, is Toe talking about Michigan, which I think is the last time I talked to Toe, too. So, uh, <laughs> there so you go, un- coming full circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, sorry they had to bring out the A team uh, today here, Sean, but uh, yeah, hopefully we, we can talk about uh, you know, I don't want to make your life too miserable now. We're in the offseason. Yeah, it felt like some sort of uh, some sort of some sort of trap, like an intervention or something. Toes here to talk about talk about NCAA tournament. Just <laughs> no, we definitely do not want to talk too much Michigan uh, after what happened last year. But I did want to jump into the Vols recruiting class as we've gotten the blue chip five star Julian Phillips uh, got big point guard BJ Edwards. I know uh, Tyreek Key, the transfer uh, right from Indiana State, and then DJ Jefferson uh, up from Minnesota. Kind of rounding out the class here, getting uh, close to the top 20, obviously returning uh, some big talent, really uh, only losing Kennedy Chandler um, and obviously Fulkerson. But uh, I think Zakai Ziegler might be able to uh, replace that whole shump. Uh, What are you thinking for Vols coming up this next season? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of said it. It's the recruiting class is is more about kind of filling a a few holes. It's going to be a lot of the same guys with, Josiah, Jordan James, and Santiago Vescovi announcing that they're or withdrawing yes. from the NBA draft and, and coming back to school. So it really wasn't a huge role Tennessee had to fill. And I think of those guys you said, B.J. Edwards can maybe help a little bit. But really, Julian Phillips, the incoming freshman, is the one guy you know it's going to have a major, major impact and I think right. have a, a chance to start. And, and he's kind of an interesting situation because Tennessee needs post-depth and he, he's not really a true post-player, but I think it kind of can lead to some of the versatility we saw a lot in the last year with Tennessee running a lot of four guard lineups. I think we 
we can see more of that with him. And then Tyreek, he, he will have, you know, some sort of role. What the size of that is right. would be to, to be determined. But uh, I think overall, uh, I think the one real hole you see on the roster is the point guard spot. Uh, I think Zakai, kind of like what you were saying, I think he can step up in the starting role. But I think you're putting a lot of pressure on B.J. Edwards right now to be his backup. So Certainly. it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yuri Collins was a St. Louis transfer to Tennessee. Uh, was kind of circling. He ends up going back to St. Louis. I think that was kind of a guy that would have rounded out the roster really, really well. And now I think Tennessee will take its last scholarship or two into the summer and see if they can kind of find a sleeper like they did last year with Sakai. Yeah. No, I agree. I think uh, I trust Rick Barnes and his recruiting for sure. I mean, it seems like uh, we, we've been hitting recently with some of these guys, so I'm excited for that. Um, kind of looking at, uh, around the rest of the SEC a little bit. One team that I'm nervous about um, is Arkansas. I mean, their class is uh, a monster one this year, and they're obviously returning a lot of talent and back-to-back elite eight runs. Uh, wh- what do you kind of think about maybe some of the other teams uh, here in the SEC that uh, we need to be on the lookout for? Yeah, it's interesting. Arkansas, uh, I think with Eric Musselman, will probably kind of continue to be uh, an off-season champion, and that's not to say that they haven't been really good during the season, but he's just consistently a lot of turnover uh, with the importer, yeah. as John Rothstein says. And I think it's really just – but one player that they have back from their roster last year. So I think that's what makes them so interesting. While they're a consensus top five, you know, top 10 preseason team in yeah. most outlets. And I think that's their potential. I think by February, they very well could be that that good. But I think at the start of the season, it's going to be tough for them to, to be play to the preseason expectations because there's just so many new pieces. And right. uh, I think it's going to be really interesting because LSU, even though I think we'll take a step back, they seem to have rebuilt pretty well at the portal, grabbing a lot of those Murray State guys. Um, so I don't think their drop-off is going to be as bad as a lot of people think. And then I think, to me, Ford is probably a wild card. Those are the two two good programs, first-year head coaches. And then Auburn, yeah. as you would expect, has done pretty well in the portal and right. is bringing in another top class. And then Kentucky's really pretty heavy on the recruiting class. But Casey Wallace is a guy that chose Kentucky over Tennessee, but I've had a chance to – follow along and watch a lot of him. I think he's going to be a, a real big star. So it's a lot of the same. The top four or five, Alabama has brings in a really good recruiting class as well, a little bit less in the transfer portal. But it was top five or six programs in the conference that have done pretty well this offseason and should have a chance to kind of be fringe top 25 teams next year. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And I've uh, been kind of checking out some of the recruiting class today and saw Duke is absolutely murdering it here in 2022 with four five stars coming in. Um, obviously, Coach K is probably done. I still think there's a chance he uh, slithers out of some hole and comes back. But uh, they're obviously going to have a new head coach. Uh, but uh, I don't know if it'll really make that much of a difference. I, I, I kind of see them in a similar situation as to UNC was um, and really just being able to, to keep things rolling quickly. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out with uh, how much young talent they have coming in. Yeah, yeah really. I, I mean, sorry, go on, Joe. Um, no, you got it. I think, like, it's interesting to see, like, I mean, Duke, for example, and, like, Kentucky as well, like, even with, like, a little bit of, like, attrition, is like, that's kind of been their MO for, you know, X amount of years, um, even with, like, with K and like, I mean, Shire has always been kind of a lead on the recruiting trail. Right. So like you kind of, you kind of knew there was going to be no follow-up with Duke. Um, and it'll be good, interesting to see like kind of how much he trying to change from like an X's and O's standpoint. It's like even looking at their team last year, like 
yeah, they were just absolutely littered with talent. But with that being said, it's like, it was almost more of like, you know, a by committee approach where, you know, the, with, when you have so much talent, you kind of are less likely to like really lean on guys. And I think like, you know, even, you know, looking at the NBA draft and looking at like Paolo or AJ Griffin is like, these guys almost, you know, you've seen this at Kentucky too. It's like, it's hard to almost value these guys, you know, by his son, not necessarily like their college stats, but also like the way that a lot of those teams run offense is like, you know, they're less likely to just like let Paolo kind of have like, all right, here's, you've got the last five minutes of the game. You're better than, you know, your matchup right now, like go win us this game. Um, and that's really never been their style. So it's going to be interesting if Shire, you know, coming from that more players approach, like decides to be a little more demonstrative with, um, you know, kind of like the leadership or, um, even just kind of like allowing guys to have more flexibility than they probably previously would have under K. Um, but even kind of going back to the portal and like the SEC, and like we've seen it in the big 10, it's, it's fascinating to see how some of these schools like can really lean into the portal and you're either like not necessarily like drop off time, but like you're, you're going to be so much easier to be competitive when you can scrape a couple guys out. Um, so it's like teams, it's very hard to see, especially from a preseason aspect, like who's really going to rise to the top when, there are a, a lot of question marks, but there's also a lot of like teams that can kind of find themselves, um, you know, middle of SEC and like kind of like hang around, so to speak, and be kind of a pesky team because like, yeah, they're going to lose X amount of players. But if you can just kind of bring in some portal guys and you already have some existing, you know, like Castleton at Florida, I think is coming back to like some of these guys are so much more likely to come back. But I think the overall level of college basketball next year is really going to be higher than we've seen it in quite some time. No, I think, yeah, uh, I think you're spot on. Go ahead, Sean. Why don't you jump in? Yeah, I think you've seen that too. Uh, just to kind of Joe's last point about the guys being better or uh, just being overall really high level of basketball this year. I think you've seen that uh, in baseball since uh, COVID, and you just have more guys in general that would still be pl- or still be playing college sports that usually wouldn't be eligible, and I think that makes a big difference. And it's right; he's right that it's it's so hard to predict uh, with the transfer portal. Now, I think it's harder than ever to top preseason top 25s to predict what teams are going to be because teams can grab a lot of talent. They can have good rosters on paper and it just doesn't necessarily always click. I think Texas last year is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Not that they were bad, but they were a preseason darling uh, going into Chris Beard's first year. They dominate the transfer portal. They bring in Marcus Carr, a handful of top guys from really what ended up being a lot of programs that weren't very good uh, where they came from. And it just didn't completely mesh. So, I think that'll be interesting. And then the other thing with Duke is just, I think you see it a lot at these big programs. It's easy to sustain handoff um, and have early success under a new year, new coach that follows a legend. I think Kevin Ollie at UConn is probably the most prominent example where these coaches typically set it up pretty well uh, when they leave and you know, say what you will about coach K. And I say this like I'm a coach K defender. I can't stand the guy, but it did the year-long retirement tour or whatever, however you want to say it, the secession plan that was put into place, I think certainly has set John Shire up to have a, a lot of success early on. And when you look at his recruiting successes and assisting the coach, it's hard not to imagine that they're going to have the talent pretty similar in his first couple of years. I think it's going to be more about if he can go out and, and sustain it on the court, you'll see. And surely there's going to be a little bit of a dip, but it's going to be the same Duke that we've, we've known the past three, four decades, whereas if – if things start slipping a little bit early, you have a little bit of a drop off. You wonder how much maybe the recruiting does slip and the talent could potentially fall. And I think you kind of UNC was 
an example where you, you worry about that too, but certainly what Hubert did the second half of the season uh, to turn things around and, and getting really all those guys to come back has really changed. I think, I mean, you just look radical, radically from the, the end of March to where the fan base mood tracker, whatever you want to use that yeah. term, it was in January when I think just about everybody in North Carolina was questioning whether Hubert was the right choice. And now it's everyone's aligned. Everything's full speed ahead and, and North Carolina should be really good for, for a long time. Yeah, I think uh, North Carolina and some of those teams just so much history, especially in basketball, you can get teams rolling. And the the impact that a small amount of players can have on the team, too, I think uh, makes a big difference why in basketball some of these teams are able to just reload, reload, and reload. Um, another team that I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit here to, to close this out on college hoops is UCLA, who has a uh, another big recruiting class coming in. Really like Mark Cronin and uh, kind of the program that he's built there. Underdogs that made it to the Final Four two years ago had a nice little Sweet 16 run last year. Um, they're they're another team that I'm kind of thinking can make some make some big jumps this year. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't even know if like jumps necessarily the right word when you know they do go Final yeah. Four and then also you know they were they were a top five preseason team again um, you know last year, um, but I, I think to a greater point and what you're going to see, um, you know, kind of across the board too in college basketball, I feel like is at a certain point, like because the talent pool has really leveled out to a certain degree, like a lot of these teams are kind of just like backfilling their, like, their bench essentially. Yeah. Um, Cause now these guys are going to say, you know, like Juzang, for example, like, I think he's gone, but I think Hawk has his back mm-hmm. um, where it's like, you know, you look at the top 10, even almost from like a preseason standpoint, and you're like, I mean, how can, like all these teams are going to be really, really good. Um, and I think like how much of that is, you know, Mick Cronin being a great coach. Like, I think that has some part to do with it. Um, but I think also just across the board, like, you know, you see it, you saw it with Arizona last year. Like I remember Arizona started the year seven and zero, and, you know, it was like, Oh, like this is just a pack 12 team. You don't really know. And then they, you know, rattle off like 15 in a row to start the year. They obviously like, you know, they were number one seed last year. Like, I, I think you're just going to see it. And I don't think that's just emblematic of UCLA. I think just now you're going to see a lot of teams that kind of weirdly will just come out of nowhere because there is going to be such a big, like, learning curve, essentially, for, you know, the Arkansas of the world or even Michigan kind of bringing in some transfers that, like, there is going to be a, a lot of shakeup to start out the year where it all that really matters is how these guys play at the end of the year. Um, and I, I think UCLA, like, they had that, you know, the big run where they – made the play-in game, um, but they had, you know, this was two years ago when they went to the final four. Um, but they, you know, that's a senior laden team with a lot of good, you know, guards and a lot of good scores. And I think like, and you saw it again, like with UNC, and I think that's going to be more and more um, of, of commonplace within college basketball. So like, there's a lot of good coaches out there and now a lot of them are, are really starting to lean into the transfer portal as well. So you couple that with recruiting and then also now you can kind of like, you can weirdly kind of attack it from more of an NBA GM standpoint where it's like, Oh, now we need like a wing shooter. Let's go to the Sun Belt and try to, you know, you can really backfill your team much better than you, you previously could have just like, all right, we're going to get a recruiting class of four guys who I think are all going to be starters. And now you can kind of be a little more specialized um, right. with kind of just selecting your team. Yeah, it's definitely the case. And to me, UCLA and Taylor's exactly right. Like North Carolina, to me, is exactly the, the exact same spot right now that UCLA was last year. And 
I think maybe they're in a little bit better spot. Not that UCLA had a bad year by any means, made it to Sweet 16, if I'm if I'm correct. Yep. But I, to be in the top five preseason last year, I felt so heavy on a one-month run that where you had Javi Haquez playing so much better than he's played at any other part of his career. And Johnny Juzang was obviously phenomenal in that stretch, too. Really just on those two players. And I think that maybe didn't make it a surprise when they weren't as dominant in the regular season as they were – expected to be i mean they were definitely second fiddle to arizona in the pac-12 and usc was was probably pretty even with them as well and i think Hawkins is uh, in a really interesting kind of case study this year just because he was injured for uh, the great great deal of last year and uh, he deferred to juzang as he should have but that was ucla's offense was very much run uh, through johnny juzang so uh, i think that'll be really interesting to see and then the other one that is interesting to me is peyton watson who was a five-star recruit for him last year and really did not do a ton. I mean, he played a little bit, but, but didn't have a huge role. So how does that, it, to me, it's just a hilarious, it's a hilarious culture fit, but just in general, the Mick Cronin recruiting five stars, like that's just, those two things don't really mesh uh, <laughs> the way Mick Cronin coaches in, in five-star culture. And he's kind of, what he's seemingly done is at least when you look at what, what Juzang did, and he was a transfer portal guy from Kentucky, but it was, if you buy into playing defense, or you can get you're going to get your shots on offense, and I think now that Juzang is gone, it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of dynamic changes where where they go to offensively. I like it. Um, for the last segment here, I did want to talk a little college baseball while we have the Vols expert here uh, with us today. Excited to kind of dive into the Knoxville Regional. Uh, I saw we're playing Alabama State to start things off, and then we've also got Georgia Tech and Campbell on the other side of that. Uh, why don't you kind of just give us a little overall preview, Shump, uh, since you've got uh, some pretty good uh, knowledge on this. Yeah, so I think my, my number one takeaway looking at it today was some great nicknames. You got the Yellow Jackets, <laughs> the Hornets, and the Campbell Fighting Camels, which is just fantastic. So uh, I think the, the overall takeaway, number one, I think it's a pretty good draw for Tennessee uh, when you look at it from that extent. There's not, it's not a right state level four seed uh, where I think they're going to be able to hold Chase Dolander and not throw him until game two at a regional. But offense, uh, Georgia Tech, top five in the nation in, in runs scored, I think number four in home runs. Campbell, uh, top, I believe, 20 offense nationally. So some really good offenses. And when you combine that with, Lindsey Nelson Stadium in yeah. June where the ball flies and the park is small. I think it's going to make for, for some fireworks. I think there was like 12 more home runs in the Knoxville Regional last year than the second most, uh, whichever regional had the second most. I think that got, might even be bigger this year. So uh, I think it's it's really heavy on offense. And, but at the same time, Georgia Tech, who's the two seed, who's the team expected to compete the most with Tennessee, right. it's like a team ERA uh, north of six. So if Tennessee's offense – is on its game, which you would expect it would be with the the friendly offensive hitting environment I just described, and then also just the depth that it has. Uh, I think it's one where Tennessee, in the end, it's stout pitching will win out, and they'll be able to get to advance to the Super Regional and maybe get Georgia Southern. I mean, that, the Statesboro region, which is one matched up with the Knoxville region, is to me the most loaded. Uh, I couldn't believe Notre Dame wasn't a host. They're the two seed there, and then Texas Tech's probably the best three seed, which I guess that makes sense. It's the number 16 region, but right. that'll be interesting because Georgia Southern, that's who Tennessee, Georgia Southern opened the season at Lindsey Nelson Stadium and Tennessee outscored them like 35 to four in three games. And they've certainly never would have thought they were going to be a regional host after that weekend. No. So, uh, it, and then also that's where Chase Dolander transferred from. So some interesting storylines there. If it does get to a super, Tennessee does get to a super regional. So it'll be interesting to follow, but 
I think I feel pretty good about Tennessee this first weekend. Yeah, I'm really excited uh, for this regional because I know last year um, was it the super regional where we were playing LSU. Yeah, yeah, correct. That, uh, that's when the game that Will and I went to, and man, the environment that these fans have just turned up out of nowhere. Toe and I were kind of talking uh, about it before. I mean, this Falls fan base is just a wagon wherever it goes. Obviously, loaded up Hoover um, and was able to get that SEC championship, which uh, gives us a ton of momentum. I hope we don't get a little too fat and happy and kind of excited about that and come a little slow, but. I don't see a team like that doing this. I mean, we've this seems like a team of destiny almost. Everything's gone right for us the whole season pretty much. Um, we had our little slump, got it out of the way, it feels like. So excited uh, to see how this plays out. Yeah, no doubt. And I think I want to hit on the fans thing. And it's, one, it's going to be an incredibly tough ticket this weekend in Knoxville. They need to get Lindsey Nelson Stadium bigger as soon as possible. Yeah. I think it's just something like 300 the t- tickets that they have, they're going to be first come, first serve, starting 90 minutes before first pitch on the weekend. But uh, what they did in Hoover, I mean, that was mind-blowing to me. It won to, on the late Friday night game to basically be pretty much even. There was a few more LSU fans. I'll, I'll call it 55-45, but to almost be even with the amount of LSU fans that were at that tournament is unbelievable. I mean, they, they dominate that event. And I remember going there to cover it first time in 2019 and pulling in and seeing all the, the LSU RVs and people that camp out for yeah. a full week and pre- predominantly LSU fans too. And then uh, I knew once you got to Sunday and they were playing Florida, who didn't have any fans there, I knew you would have the vast majority of the people there would be Tennessee fans, but for there to be 13,000 people there, uh, almost full, almost sold out crowd. And it'd be whatever it was, 85% Tennessee fans. It's absolutely wild. I had someone, uh, responding to a tweet who who I know used to work at the Beacon where in the Tennessee School Newspaper where I was at, and he said he covered a 2005 team, which made it to the College World Series. It was a really good team. Right. He said there might not have been 200 fans in Hoover that week. So it's crazy uh, how the – I mean, everyone loves a winner, but it's more than that. Uh, Tennessee fans have just absolutely fallen in love with, with Tony Vitello and the program, and it's going to be really interesting to see what they do. And what the Tennessee fan base is, is going to be like if they are they are able to make it to Omaha, how many go out and make the trip. Yeah, Toe, you were talking about, wasn't it Lyndon uh, went last year to Omaha? Um, and he said it was just an absolutely unreal event. So uh, I might have to uh, make a trip here if uh, the Vols are able to do it because I've heard insane things. Yeah, I had 100% recommend it. I mean, it was like a – it was a bucket list thing that <laughs> – I never really thought I would be doing with Tennessee just because of how bad Tennessee has traditionally been. But even when they went there and lost their first two games last year and really weren't very competitive in either of those games, it was a super fun week and a super fun event to cover. And the one thing that makes it hard is you can't really, for the fans' perspective, you can't really go out there and do the whole thing if the team makes the run because it's like a 10-day trip. So you get kind of in the tough ground of do you want to go early and guarantee yourself a chance to be there and watch them play or do you want to and that's especially the case this year with how good Tennessee is. Do you want to roll the dice and gamble and see, uh, wait and see if they can make it to that championship series and, and then come for that? But it's, it's a, a trip I would 100% recommend to, to anyone listening. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm excited to see uh, uh, really just us get deep into our pitching staff and just let everybody loose, obviously, for this final postseason run. Um, I think that's probably the most underrated piece of this Tennessee team because everybody loves to talk about the big bats that we have and how many home runs and all that stuff. Uh, but obviously, the pitching staff is absolutely loaded top to bottom. 
uh, pretty much every guy you, re- you really need on a team. Um, so how important do you think pitching is really going to be? I mean, it obviously is one of the most important things that baseball, a pitcher can, can control the game, but do you think the Vols are going to be able to uh, maybe rely on some of that pitching staff if uh, the bats go a little bit cold? Yeah, to me, that that's definitely their biggest strength. And I think Evan Russell even said it back well, maybe six weeks ago now where he's like, the offensive numbers are great, but it's this pitching staff yeah. that makes it special. And I think that they've done a good job of managing those guys. They have so many young guys. We're Burns and Beam. None of them pitched their junior year of high school because of COVID. Beam had Tommy John his senior year. So they've really had to manage those guys. Even Doander, who was at Georgia Southern last year, is already thrown, even missing 17 days yeah, of injury, has already thrown – already 25 more innings than he threw in his freshman season. And then again, his senior season of high school, he didn't pitch because of of COVID. So I think they've done a really good job of managing those guys. And, and you said it, the depth, they go starter wise, they go five deep uh, guys. They feel really good about And just in general, they have nine, 10 arms uh, that they feel really comfortable. And I think that's what makes them in a regional. So, so tough to beat because it's all about your pitching depth. And and, then if you get to Omaha, so much of it's about your pitching depth. I think that makes them, or really, really tough and would give them a great chance to win it all if they made it. That's where the, the super regional, you know, I'm not counting my chickens, you know, before they hatch on Tennessee right. making it to Omaha because it's super tough. regional, it's three games. It's, Anything can know, happen. Baseball is a very random sport, and any team that's going to make it through a super regional is going to have enough pitching to, to be good in a three-game set. And, look, Arkansas was the great example of it last year. The Vanderbilt team that has the best SEC record in conference history lost two games yeah, in the was that Super Regional to Louisville. Like yeah, yeah, 2013. So it'll be really interesting. It'll be interesting who ends up because uh, I do think Tennessee will get past the regional. It'll be interesting to see who ends up coming in, especially with Notre Dame. That's a program that has a lot of talent. I think was was underseated and was in a Super Regional last year. Lost really really competitive Super Regional yeah. at Mississippi State, who obviously went on to win the national championship. So as good as Tennessee's been, there's uh, I think some teams matched up with them. They could play them in super regional that certainly would have the confidence and, and the capability to beat them in a three game series. So who are you taking out of that uh, Statesboro regional? If you had to choose, I mean, obviously would you go UNC Greensboro uh, that four seed? Cause Notre Dame and Texas tech, honestly uh, they do scare me a little bit. Both of those teams have been uh, shown flashes of greatness. And like you said, it's a three game series. Anything can happen uh, if a team gets hot. Yeah, I would probably go with Notre Dame, uh, just kind of from what I said. I think their lineup is the best of any of them, which I think is kind of the key to coming in and beating Tennessee is getting to that really good pitching staff. And, and you can do that in the small ballpark. Um, so, yeah, I would probably take Notre Dame. I do think that the one thing that you look at for, for maybe the support Georgia Southern, who I, will, I imagine will be the, the least picked uh, number, you know, host seed of any of the 16 regional right. sites is the fact that, Texas Tech and Notre Dame are going to have to play on that first game, and they're going to hand one of each other a loss. And if you lose that first game, it's just nearly impossible yeah, to come back. And, and Yeah, rattle off, I think, what has to be five straight wins at that point to, to win the whole thing. And if Georgia Southern can take care of UNC Greensboro, which isn't a guarantee, but uh, they weren't the SOCON regular season champ. Uh, they just win the tournament, and they had a good season, but not, I don't think, an elite four seed by any means. If they right. do that, uh, they – it's just going to come down to that second game and they're going to be able to have a, a really good shot against whoever that is. No, I think that's a, a good take there. Toe, uh, you got any insights uh, on Michigan baseball or anything like that? I don't know how closely uh, you follow it, but uh, if you can give us a little info, I'd love to, uh, love to hear it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, sleeper team, they, uh, they were the five seed going to the big 10 tournament. 
and then ended up winning the Big Ten tournament um, against Rutgers, who ended up not making it. They had a, a program um, record of like 45 wins. I think it, I want to say it's like, if not the most, but one of the one of the like, most amount of wins to not make an NCAA tournament it was kind of uh, a very sore subject for a lot of big uh, Big Ten fans. But um, this Michigan team, I'm going to be honest, really haven't paid a lot of attention to them. But you have a lot of guys who were on that 2019 team who um, – who lost in the final to Vandy in three games. They took the first one. Um, so there, there's a lot of experience within that Michigan team. Um, so they, they're in the Louisville region. They've got Oregon. Um, I'm going to be completely honest. They're probably going to lose. Um, but it's nice to see them, you know, kind of make a run, um, especially because, like, you know, with that, you know, breath of, like, you know, Rutgers not making it is, you know, Big Ten baseball, like, not that there's not really any good programs, but at the same time, like, they do kind of get um, – kind of like ripped us like nationally because like from scheduling and like, you know, half, you know, really doesn't get warm there until, until like, yeah. again, this is like very much just Homer excuses, but like, I do think Northern baseball by and large, and you know, you can see it also, you know, cream does rise to the top. Like SEC teams pretty much dominate the super regionals they have been for, you know, ever since I've really like kind of loosely paid attention to college baseball. Um, but I do think like, you know, it happened in 2019 when Michigan had won the big 10, they were really good. No one really kind of thought much of them and they, um, obviously kind of had a, a very magical run and they really had no business being there. But like you were saying, like they kind of just rode some good pitching. And if you can get hot at the right time, you have some hit, you know, timely bats, like you, you can make a run. Um, I think probably not going to be this year. Louisville's kind of a wagon in that region. Yeah. Um, but it's always nice to see, you know, postseason success, especially from teams you, you really don't expect that much. I think that's pretty uh, pretty good to hear. I mean, Michigan, got to root for them a little bit. Uh, I don't really like Oregon too much. So, hey, I hope you guys somehow pull it off. But like you said, that Louisville baseball team is uh, pretty damn good, and they've had a good program here for a while. I feel like they're always kind of just routinely in the mix for making a run at the uh, the World Series. Yeah, definitely. One down year and last year, and then they were back. And then, yeah, to, to Toe's point about Rutgers. Yeah, Rutgers and North Carolina State, the two teams I was – really surprised to see didn't make it today uh, I thought they would and an old miss was the one that was shocked to see that did end up making it but yeah it's no point it's you can make a run you get you get a couple arms hot and what Michigan that the year they made it to championship uh, I know they weren't a regional host were they even like a, I could be wrong about this a three seed in whatever region they were in yeah they I'm not sure if it was three but um I think they were two six they, they did okay. win the big 10 that year I think it was them or Indiana um but yeah, it was like they had, you know, a couple good they had two pitchers who really just were absolutely dumb. You know, they you give them the ball and it was like pretty much I mean, if Michigan can score three runs, they have a decent chance at winning. So um, I mean those guys have since left, but uh, like I said, they still have a lot of talent um, you know, from that team. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But I'm excited. Yeah, I think to that point about you get two pitchers and you can take them a long way. Just look at what Vanderbilt is, did the last few years with with Rocker and Lighter. And obviously yeah. those guys were were next level good, dominant, top fifteen picks in the MLB draft, but I think you've seen this year, it, you kind of saw it in, in Omaha last year with, with how Bandy struggled, even though they made it to championship, got lucky with that North Carolina state thing, that offense pretty, pretty pedestrian. And you've seen it this year, you take away those two arms from Vanderbilt and they've had the worst season they've had in, in 10 years. So it's, it's a pitching, pitching game. And if you get a couple arms, you, you can ride those guys a long way. I agree. Um, Guys, we're running out of time here. Got a couple of minutes left. Uh, definitely want to say thank you both for filling in here for the boys. Uh, it's always good to uh, get some fresh takes and some fresh insight. Uh, any closing statements before I close us out here? 
No, thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Trucial. Um, yeah, of course. I yeah, that's uh, it's always been a blast. And maybe um, you know we'll see how this NBA final series shakes out. But um, you know, I, I think we're gonna get some good games here if we want to you know run it back and kind of go a little more uh, yeah. in depth. On, yeah, we on might some have this to NBA do a little, stuff, uh, especially with the uh, NBA draft NBA. coming up here too. Oh yeah, that's true. So uh, we might have to uh, do a little separate NBA pod jump. We might bring you in too. Um, but definitely we'll have to keep you, keep you close as uh, we get into the postseason here in baseball. And uh, obviously Vols going for the trifecta in SEC championships uh, with football coming up here soon. You never know what can happen. Uh, Let's not get so ahead of ourselves now. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think we have, a, we have a pretty good sample size of what, what can happen. <laughs> Hey, uh, I saw some stat, and Shump, correct me if I'm wrong on this. Don't the Vols have the most national championships uh, over the past year out of any SEC program across all athletics? SEC championships, yeah. Yeah. At least SEC tournament championships, yeah. And that was kind of crazy. I looked at it today, and you know, I knew tennis, the baseball team, obviously, this past week, they never trailed in Hoover. I knew the basketball team didn't trail much. I went back and ran that. It was a minute and seven seconds. And then the soccer team, who, who won down in – Oh, Orange Beach back in November didn't yeah. trail for that whole tournament. So uh, a couple of dominant runs uh, from uh, a trio of Tennessee sports teams in SEC tournament. Yeah, you'll love to see it. Um, but guys, thank you again for hopping on. Uh, I want to close out things here. Make sure to check out uh, Six Pack Coverage at sixpackcoverage.com. You can check them out on uh, Instagram and Twitter at, at sixpackcoverage. Paydirt Sports, you can check out the website, paydirtsports.blog. Uh, check out Twitter, Paydirt underscore sports, and then Instagram, one word, Paydirt sports. Uh, that's all I got. Thank you, guys. Paydirt out. Oh.